Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Shirley Chisholm was the first Black woman elected to Congress in 1968. She was also the first Black person to run for a major party's presidential ticket. Here she is announcing her campaign in 1972. I am not the candidate of Black America, although I am Black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Shirley Chisholm was elected 100 years after Hiram Revels became the first Black man to serve in Congress, and 50 years after Jeanette Rankin was elected. As a Black woman and the daughter of Jamaican immigrants, Chisholm disrupted our notions of political representation. In her 14 years in Congress, she was bold and fearless at a time when women, especially Black women, were dismissed in politics. Her example and her commitment to building organizations paved the way for more women to serve. And yet today, even with a record number of Black women elected to Congress and a Black woman headed to the office of the vice president, there's still much work to be done. Black women are the most underrepresented in statewide offices, and there's never been a Black woman governor in the U.S. But one organization is trying to change that. Glenda C. Carr is president, CEO, and co-founder of Higher Heights for America. It's an organization that helps select progressive Black women at every level of government. Glenda is a Connecticut native and a University of Hartford alum, and she joins us today. Welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. You have this very long and accomplished career in politics and in government. Why create this organization, Higher Heights? Heights was born uh, in a Brooklyn cafe, actually, between two friends. Kimberly Peeler Allen and I have been friends for, I guess now, almost 20 years and have been work colleagues. Um, And so I asked her for coffee in 2011 as I uh, grappled with what my next step would be from a career perspective. You know, when you work in politics, sometimes after an election, you find yourself without a job. And so was trying to figure out kind of what my trajectory and what I thought would be the highest use of my uh, time and talents and treasures. And it was, you know, right after the 2010 um, midterm elections. And so we started talking about, you know, being uh, working in progressive politics and oftentimes still being in rooms that was very, um, you know, white dominant and male dominant. And, you know, just at one point, like, we should start our own thing. (laughs) <laughs> and started fleshing out well, what would it look like, um, what what currently at that time existed. Uh, and we were, wrote the words higher heights down um, for the first time that day and spent a little over a year and a half talking to um, Black women across this country 
uh, about what uh, organization would look like that was um, unapologetically designed for and by black women. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, at that time, we did not know that we were the, going to be the architects of building the political home for a black woman, a place for us to be informed, engage, and to take action and to uh, harness or, or as I say, unleash uh, the organizing political power of black women from the voting booth to elected office. So you've just been named as one of the 25 women to watch. And so congratulations on that accomplishment first. Thank you. And part of your acknowledgement of that is referencing the unleashing of the organizing power of Black women, as you mentioned. And I want to take you back to a letter you wrote back in 2017 to Tom Perez as head of the DNC. And you said there, quote, Organize, organizing without the engagement of Black women will prove to be a losing strategy. Talk to us about why you felt compelled to write the letter, but also about that organizing power of Black women. So interesting enough, um, you know, I drafted the first version in a Connecticut cafe. <laughs> you see a theme in Connecticut cafe and, you know, um, worked and partnered with Black women leaders across this country uh, to, um, you know, send that letter to Tom Perez, who at the time was the new uh, chair of the uh, DNC and, um, you know, organized meetings and discussions around the underinvestment in Black women's political leadership. Um, data had pointed to, has pointed to, um, you know, the fact that Black women are the building blocks to a winning coalition um, mm -hmm. as voters uh, and that we are the best return on uh, voting investment, um, not only as voters, but as elected leaders. Um, and so, uh, there's been, you know, decades of discussion about the underinvestment in Black voters. Um, it was a tipping point at that time, uh, and Black women leaders across this country wanted to hold, um, particularly the using the party as kind of the 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 top of the infrastructure that we were demanding our return on our voting investment, um, and that is in investing in our political leadership and, frankly, our political possibilities. Uh, and um, you know, since then we've seen, you know, um, you know, organizations like Higher Heights, the Collective Pack, um, Black Voters Matter, Woke Pack, Black Church Pack, um, the Collective Pack, you know, continue to, you know, grow our 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 power and influence in a way to shape um, what we believe the democracy should be. You have helped affirm and also heighten the visibility of these organizing strategies, these networks and these organizations that have long been part of Black political organizing and not only helped raise that visibility, but also sent the very clear message that those investments have to be made in voters and candidates as in organizers and also strategists. What does meaningful political representation for Black women look like to you? At the end of the day, Black women want what our neighbors want across, you know, gender, race, socioeconomic backgrounds and political ideology. We want to live in economically thriving, educated, healthy and safe communities. So we all can agree on that umbrella, umbrella world of what we, we envision um, the best of America. Um, and the way you do that is ensure um, 
Jessica Byrd and I, uh, a political organizer and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley have both said is that the people, people closest to the pain need to be part of building out um, the solutions to move past that. Um, and to be able to do that, you know, in this in the spirit of Shirley Chisholm, um, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about Shirley Chisholm and her quote about, you know, um, if there's not a seat at the table, um, bring a folding chair. Um, and so recently I had said, well, we want to def define what the table looks like. Um, but if you actually go back to her framework about bringing a seat at the table, that framework could mean that we, we're not trying to take seats at tables, we want to actually expand the table. And so by bringing a folding chair, it is, is not necessarily the notion of kicking someone out. Now, I'm a modern day feminist. I'm about blaming and moving people out of seats. <laughs> um, but to be able you know, to actually, you know, um, black women have already always been um, you know, the, the thread that goes through our democ democracy and in in its tapestry. Without the investment, without frankly being invited, um, our research with the Center for American Women in Politics actually points to that black women that women are not encouraged to run for office. Women of color and black women are actually actively discouraged for running for office. Yet black women persist. And so, at the end of the day, we know that we need to we need to continue to be active participants in this democracy. Um, that in this cycle, as everyone said, is saying, "Thank you, black women." Um, for us, it is not that you need to thank us. <laughs> um, it is, is knowing that we, we, we lead regardless of the obstacles and barriers that um, continue to be in our um, pathway as leaders, that we are not doing this work to save you. We're doing this work because we're very clear um, of the urgency of now. Um, mm -hmm. And that our political participation is ensuring that we not only survive this moment, that we actually imagine how we can thrive past this moment. Talk to us about that notion of electability, right? I hate this term, even as a political scientist, because it often becomes code word for the types of people who were never imagined to be in these spaces and creating barriers for them to persist through. How does Higher Heights address this notion of electability, but really empower women candidates to persist even beyond that sort of limit? You're exactly correct. I mean, electability is a coded word uh, around um, there being a unconscious or conscious bias of what leadership looks like. Um, and so oftentimes the word electability is um, tagged to women, women of color and black women, and frankly, um, um, candidates of color. Um, there is no definition, as you know, <laughs> of what, uh, what electability means, right? Um, yes, there is, it, it, you know, this work is political science, right? There is a methodology around how candidates um, position themselves and run a campaign that um, positions them best to win. But at the end of the day, we've seen um, a Stacey Abrams being told about, you know, her electability, a Kamala Harris um, being told about her electability, and frankly, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Um, and so we have to challenge the notion of what does electability mean? I mean, at the end of the day, this election cycle have, has proven that people have, that, that, that candidates have won with, frankly, no money, um, with no operation, um, with little to no name recognition, but what they had was, um, um, they they had the 
the spirit um, and the drive to run compelling campaigns. I, I usually talk about institutional barriers because uh, at the end of the day, we, you know, electability is tied to institutions supporting candidates early um, and man-made barriers. Um, and those barriers around, you know, um, perceptions around electability, man-made barriers around, if you were saying someone's not electable, that slows down their ability to raise money. Um, and so there's a lot of work um, beyond 2020. We're talking with Glenda C. Carr, president and CEO of Higher Heights for America, an organization dedicated to getting Black women elected at every level of government. We'll hear more from her after the break. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, we'll talk to three generations of a Connecticut family who've been influenced by membership in Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. But now we're talking with Glenda Carr, president and CEO of Higher Heights for America. It's an organization dedicated to electing Black women. I asked her if she feels excitement around the results of the 2020 election. Um, I believe in steady gain. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we celebrate the gains we made at the top of the ticket. I mean, that is leaps and bounds. Uh, progress for women's leadership with the election of uh, Kamala Harris. But we had a record number of Black women run as Democrats and Republicans. And um, although we will celebrate that we have a record number of Black women that will be um, sworn in in January to the House of Representatives, um, you know, we're calling for the replacement of Kamala Harris's seat in California to be a Black woman. Um, many to choose from, but particularly Congresswoman Karen Bass uh, and Congresswoman Barbara Lee um, are both excellent choices that at the end of the day, if um, the California governor, um, you know, Gavin Newsom decides not to appoint a Black woman, we will have a major void um, in the U.S. Senate um, in the next term. I am hopeful for the future, but recognize the work that needs to be done. Um, and I would point to uh, uh, one of Shirley Chisholm quotes that I've been using over the last couple of weeks, particularly as we were figuring out what was happening with election, with election night and the days um, after. She said, I have hope in America. Um, and that is what we built um, Higher Heights on was that we believed that um, we believed in the possibilities of Black women's leadership um, and the way you believe in the possibilities is obviously being hopeful, but also building out a plan um, to move this country to higher heights. And that hope seems like an act of resistance in the face of the structural barriers that you mentioned, in the face of some of the sort of individual challenges that you mentioned. And even with this win and its impact on, you know, you've talked about its impact on leadership, there still seems to be this void in electing Black women to statewide office. So we've had some gains at the local level, important gains at the national level, but statewide. Why do you think that capturing statewide office seems to be so elusive when it comes to diversifying those spaces with Black women? You know, our work with the Center for American Women of Politics, again, our research partner, um, we put out a status of Black women in American politics um, yearly. Uh, it's the first project Higher Heights embarked on when we started. Um, we we believe that you couldn't build a blueprint forward if you didn't know where we've been 
uh, where we currently are and to project where are the, the greatest opportunities. And so, as I mentioned, there's incremental gains. So in 2014, we only had two black women serving, um, elected and serving as mayors of top 100 cities. We find ourselves this year, um, you know, with a record number of black women, you know, serving uh, in, in those roles. And as you know, before the global pandemic, no one could probably name these women. They're now household names, like Akeisha Lance Bottoms in uh, Atlanta, um, Latoya Cantrell from New Orleans, Sharon Western Broom from Baton Rouge, uh, Miriam Bowser from um, uh, from Washington D.C., Lori Lightfoot from Chicago, and then London Bree from from San Francisco. I use that as an example because that is major incremental gains um, since 2014 for executive offices in major cities. But you are exactly correct around statewide executive office. We do not have and we've never had a black woman governor in our country's history. Um, we've only elected 15 black women to statewide executive offices. Um, so there is work to be done, but that is pipeline work. It is why we celebrate Kamala Harris as a blueprint. Here is a woman who has won um, citywide office, has served as a statewide executive, who has served as a U.S. Senator and is now stepping into the Oval Office. We need to find the Kamalas across this country, the city council members, um, the school board members, um, those that are, are running and in, in, in leading very boldly on the local level and create pathways for them to run for higher office. Um, it is identifying the Johanna Hayes of the world who um, you know, went from being a teacher to the teacher of the year and, and decided to step off the sidelines and, and, and literally run for national office um, as a congressional member. Um, by identifying those um, black women that have varied qualifications and um, um, diverse lived experiences, we will you know, move, um, place black women at decision-making tables on the local, state and national level, and then continue to invest in their leadership and have them run for higher office um, that is how we continue to like increase the number of black women serving on the statewide office level as well as national level. One of the things that I appreciated Kamala Harris say, saying was that she may be the first, but she won't be the last. And so much of the work that you are doing, Glenda, with Higher Heights and, and in collaboration with other women is, as you say, creating that pipeline so that people don't have the excuse of saying we can't find candidates. You are encouraging people and helping to cultivate that leadership. How do we include younger women? so that they too see themselves as leaders in these spaces, that they see opportunities for their leadership to be cultivated, but to also be part of the conversation? One, it's a role modeling effect. Um, and so I always, you know, obviously speak to the, the direct descendants of Shirley Chisholm's legacy, but certainly the impact of Stacey Abrams' bold run in um, 2018, uh, is a direct uh, link to the largest number of black women running this cycle. Um, you know, here's a woman who, when you talk about just changing the diversity, age diversity, um, you know, she's a Gen Xer, um, but still certainly much younger than um, what people perceive as what leadership looks like. Currently, you know, the, the, the narrative around leadership still is male, white, and older. Um, and then you saw the bold runs of 
uh, Desiree Timms run um, out of Dayton, Ohio, who is 20, who is 33 years old. So certainly that, that, you know, women seeing these young women run, boldly run, um, as I said, uh, there were some tough losses that were mourning um, this cycle, but in the losses, we have wins. Um, and those wins, like a Desiree Timms, um, is that she is actually going to, you know, one, when she's ready, we are ready to stand with her at whatever point she decides to enter back into her political leadership. Um, but she also certainly um, will have inspired younger women to run in their local community. Or frankly, here's a woman who went off to school stayed in Washington, D.C., worked in um, D.C. government and decided to go home because she believed that she could make an impact in her hometown. That is what we, you know, aspire young women to do. Go off and be great in college. Go off and be great in your early career and consider coming home and making an impact in your local community as an elected official. How do we tell those stories, Glenda? How do we share those stories with young people, with older women, so that they also feel affirmed and know that work? I think it's telling our stories. I mean, that is literally the basis of you know our, our work at Higher Heights. We create a space uniquely designed for and by Black women and for us to be able to tell our stories. But we also need our allies to be able to share our stories um, and to recognize that our leadership transcends um, you know, race. Uh, that, you know, Black women, I always say, if white men can certainly represent me, uh, we have proven time and time again that there are amazing Black women that are, um, that are elected in districts um, that are diverse or frankly not diverse, right? Lauren Underwood represents a district um, um, in uh, rural and suburban Illinois that is only 3% Black. You know, that community saw that this young African-American woman who, could, who, who too came back home from Washington had the leadership that, that they believed they needed in that district. Um, and so, although, you know, we obviously celebrate and rock that she's a black woman, it is that her qualifications and lived experiences made her the person they need, that, that they believe they wanted to send to Washington. Um, and so it is being able to tell the stories, you're creating a platform to share stories about, um, you know, women, women of color, um, and Black women uh, in particular about our political, you know, um, political contribution to this democracy. Um, and it takes all of us to be able to share what type of reflective democracy we, we want, but frankly, that we're current, currently demanding. You mentioned Lauren Underwood. We've talked about Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, and they, like the two of us are members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Talk to us, Glenda, about why that connection is so important, not just in terms of Alpha Kappa Alpha, but also the importance of Black women's organizations as this sort of leadership development space. I'll approach it um, two ways. I'll start with Senator Harris. Why was she um, the best choice? Um, there were six black women that were on the, the vice president Biden's list. At the end of the day, um, four of them remained on his final list. That was one, the work of making sure that we were positioning black women, um, to, to be best positioned to be named as a vice president running mate, but it also demonstrated how deep and long the bench of black women leaderships how long our leadership bench is. Um, and that being said, I'll just laser focus on why um, Kamala Harris 
um, I believe was the right choice. Her superpower was her uh, multiple identities, right? Here is a woman that many people saw themselves in. She was a woman. She was a woman of color. She's a daughter of immigrants. Um, she is, you know, you know, um, identifies herself as a black woman with Indian heritage. Um, she's, you know, <laughs> she is a member of a historically black Greek letter organization, and she went to an HBCU. And so people saw themselves in that. For me, you know, I am a woman, a black woman, <laughs> um, a, you know, daughter of a Jamaican immigrant, um, a member of a historically black college, um, and so. That is our superpowers. The black women belong to these, you know, long-standing institutions, civic institutions, and social institutions, and we certainly showed how we unleash our individual organizing power. I mean, I'm a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha, and I was tired of seeing all the pink and green. <laughs> um, and so it was that excitement to know that um, we were celebrating the black excellence of the organizations. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Uh, even talks about when she said divine nine that, you know, reporters and everybody was Googling what, what is the divine nine, right? It's the collective of the nine black, um, historically black Greek letter organizations. And so certainly, you know, we were able to show on a, a larger platform, not only the organization's um, power collectively, but also the fact that our bench of amazing black women across sectors um, are leading across this country. So as our conversation comes to a close, there are a lot of people who are asking, what do they do next? So there are people who want to remain engaged, who want these spaces to be able to have conversation, but to also connect. What would you say to people who have that feeling? How would you encourage them? Well, one, we hope you would come and build and be part of the Higher Heights community. It centers Black women, but our home is big. Uh, and wide and welcomes all who want to help build a democracy that looks like America. Um, democracy doesn't actually begin and end on election day. In fact, it is when it begins. And that is the hard work. There is a transition that is happening in Washington. And so we need to be active participants in this democracy. And so if you're thinking about running for office, um, spend some time determine if that is the best use of your, um, your time, talents and treasures. And if it is, you know, let's get you elected. Um, if you want to ensure that we are passing legislation that centers the issues that you believe in, then our elected leaders need to hear from, from you. Continue to register voters, continue to engage in every election. We had a record number of people vote in this cycle. We need to see that in every election. And so be committed that you are going to not only um, be an informed voter, but that you're gonna to continue to organize your house, your block, your church, your sorority and your union. And at the end of the day, if we want leaders that inspire us um, and organizations that build the democracy that we believe in, that we can believe in, we need to open up our pocketbooks and our wallets and invest. So I encourage you as we go into the holiday season in the end of the year, that you should be looking at making a political budget for 2021. Uh, if you've never written a check before to a, a candidate that inspires you, make a commitment that you'll support somebody. If, you've made, if you, you are a political contributor, determine if you're gonna double that budget and what does it look like. Um, we all each have a role to play um, and it can be from running from, from, from registering to vote, running for office and being an advocate. Glenda C. Carr is president and co-founder of Higher Heights for America. Glenda, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Coming up, how one sorority has been connecting and uplifting Black women for more than a century. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The sounds you hear are from a gathering of members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. It's the world's oldest sorority founded by Black women in 1908. Now picture this, a multi-generational gathering of women adorned in pink and green and pearls, uniting in prayer before joining a choreographed stroll to the song Set It Off by Strafe. And that's Kiwi. Well, that's the trademark sound shared by members across the globe from New Haven to Dubai. The women celebrated the fact that one of our own, Kamala Harris, was elected vice president. The sorority was founded on the campus of Howard University, which also happens to be the alma mater of the vice president-elect. I was there, as were Cheryl Pegues and her daughter, Alicia Spearman. We're all members of Alpha Kappa Alpha, and they join me now, along with Alicia's daughter, Kayla, a high school senior. We wanted to talk to these three generations about what it's meant for their family to be involved in the sorority and how they're feeling after the election. Cheryl, Alicia, and Kayla, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. So I want to jump right into our conversation by talking about Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. The vice president-elect mentioned the group during her DNC speech. We've seen pink and green everywhere. Uh, Senator Harris wears her pearls. And a lot of people have been asking, you know, what is this sorority all about? They think that it's just something you do in college. So Alicia, talk to our listeners about why this organization is important to you and really important for Black women's organizations overall? Well, we're the first African-American Greek letter organization founded in 1908, and we have been an essential part of uplifting and educating our community. So where others did not want us back in the 1900s, wouldn't allow us to work, wouldn't allow us to participate, we did it ourselves. We formed our own community of women leaders. And for me, I was initiated at Wellesley College in spring 1984, And when you attend a predominantly uh, white institution, it was like my other family. It was a lifeline in addition to the black student group. And of course my mom's a member of the sorority. And so I've been around, I've grown up around women who are leaders in the sorority and I've learned from them and they've been great role models. So it's historic. So Cheryl, let's talk about that historic nature because you've been a member for 58 years. And you've seen lots of changes, not just in the organization, but around the country from your time growing up in West Virginia. What has your experience been like being a member of the organization, but also being a part of a lot of changes across the country? Well, I'd like to say that my journey really began as my earlier life as I am a child of um, segregation and um, lived um, under segregation and schooling and all my academic pursuits until I was age 12 when the Brown versus Board Education Law was passed and I was entering the seventh grade and it was very different. I was going to a foreign school on land that I had never even crossed the threshold of. So it was quite traumatic, more traumatic than I know, but I do know that it was now because I remember 
as clear, as clearly as if it were yesterday, what happened on that morning and that day I left going to school. So a lot of change living in the state of West Virginia, more importantly, living in the capital city, I really did not see some of the very blatant signs of segregation, such as colored and white signs. I assumed that that was because it was the capital city. So we didn't see that, but we felt the segregation because everything was separate. We had our own hotels. Um, we had our own theaters, um, our own pharmacies. So that was quite the difference. But um, I have to say that my family, we have a rich history of love in our family. And so the area and being and living in segregation didn't really have the greatest effect on me. I cried when the school was integrated because I wanted to go to Boyd Junior High School, which was right down the block from me. And when I got to college, um, joining the sorority, I'd seen and been around women in my community, my mothers of some of my friends who were in the sorority. So it was just, um, just the next step it seemed. And um, it's been a glorious ride, I should say, all these many years wearing my pearls and um, being a part of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. I joined the organization in um, December, 1962 and thus 58 years coming up um, soon. One of the things that I think it's important and why we were excited to have this conversation with the three of you is because there's a lot of excitement that people are feeling right now, but a lot of that is connected to the history and the kind of ideas of what people can do in the future in order to affirm what's happened in the past. And so Kayla, you are a high school senior. You are a young person who's very much engaged in what's happening in the country and, and having these conversations with your peers and challenging your teachers to be attentive to that. What does this moment mean for you as a young person? To me, it's, imp it's pretty important because a lot of it isn't necessarily politics to me. It's like human rights aren't really like up for debate to me. So it's um, been interesting, like learning where I stand and where others stand and just have conversations. And this moment is pretty important because like my grandma said, she grew up in segregation and integration and lived through that. And just to be able to see a woman of color, a woman of color, yeah, both of those in office um, Vice President of the United States is like probably my grandma probably would have never thought of that ever happening so for me to see that and I'm only 17 now it's like a pretty big moment. Alicia a lot of the work that you do as chairman of the International Leadership Fellows Program is really about creating these spaces for young women to be leaders not just in the organization but in corporate America in higher education in whatever path that they choose hearing your daughter talk about the opportunities that she sees now because of the things that your mother went through why is it important for you to create those spaces for young leaders I just think that so often our voice as a woman of color is not valued and especially between sexism or racism African-American women or women of color get a double whammy. And for me, being able to create, develop, and execute a leadership development program for undergraduates, people of color that focus on career development, personal development, and being leaders in our sorority is just phenomenal. It's just fun. And I've already seen the fruits of the labor that my committee and I have done. We've been, I've been doing this since 2014, and many of these young women 
have risen to the highest leadership that they can get to in our sorority. They're higher ranking than me and my mother. They're on our directorate, on our board of directors. And then we have others like Rachel Scott becoming the first White House correspondent. And there's so many that are excelling in med school and law school. And what I find out is that you, um, they often need encouragement because they were told, like I was told, I was a merit scholar, yet my high school counselor had the nerve to say, why are you applying to all these elite schools? And I just personally thought he was crazy, but I also came from a family of educated people. So I knew that to just ignore him, but there's people all along the way who have those very similar stories. For my daughter, it's great. She sees her aunties. She sees my mother. She sees many role models around her. And for my husband and I, it's interesting from her generation, even though I told her sexism exists, racism exists, and you still have to survive and thrive. She's just like, mom, is it fair? And so she's right. And there, there are generations on Twitter and Snapchat and everything else calling people out on the inequities and not being quiet about it. Whereas we were trained to kind of just show them that you can succeed by your education and your careers. But my daughter's generation is like, stop that at the door. That's not fair. Don't have that barrier. Cheryl, you have been a part of these efforts during the civil rights movement, the voices of young people demanding this change. You are very supportive of your granddaughter now and the things that she's calling out. Why did this election resonate with you so personally? Because you have seen these elections, you have seen expectations that people have. And yet, you know, we saw the images of you and Alicia and others celebrating in New Haven. Why that joy in this moment in this election? Well, there are lots of reasons, but let me say first and foremost that, um, I have never been more thrilled to see the young people take up the mantle, to take up, to say, no longer, no longer. When I first saw, I think the thing that stands most in my mind is that young man, George Floyd, being murdered in front of our eyes, it tore me to my core because my first thought was how much more, how much more? I thought about the 12, when I was 12 years old, when integration set in, and I thought, now this is 65 years later and not a lot has changed. We are seeing such atrocities now because most everyone has a, a telephone, a cell phone of some sort where they can record. So many have gone unrecorded that we know nothing about, nothing about. Not only those atrocities, but the hidden history of our people that we have, has never been brought forth. It's so much. So to see, I began with Barack Obama. I had never been very, very much um, involved in politics. I've always been able um, to stand my ground, to speak my piece, very principled, and, uh, and, and with honesty to just state my feelings about things, heard or unheard. So his venture started me listening a little bit more, becoming more involved um, na uh, nationally, na nationwide. Um, and then to have my own sorority sister be elected to the second highest office in this country, it's, it's breathtaking and it's, it's so meaningful that we have reached and been able to attain and to let the world know, oh, we have all the grit it takes, we have all the smarts it takes, we have the education, we have the culture, 
we do have it all. And now the world can see that. Kayla, listening to your grandmother, and she mentioned uh, Barack Obama being elected as the country's first Black president. And now you have lived through that. You know what it is like to have someone in the highest office of the land who shares an identity with you, but also shares a history with you. And now we see the election of Kamala Harris. And so for you as a young person, while these are breaking barriers, it won't be as foreign to you as it has been for past generations. What do you think is the next barrier? that we need to address when we think about the things that you and your friends talk about um, and thinking about what's the next step in that? Um, often my friends and I talk about things within the own, like our own community, so the Black community, mostly about colorism. Actually, the other night we were talking about, you know, we, need, we needed this breakthrough. Like, yes, Kamala is the first um, Black woman in the vice president office, but we were thinking about what if it were to be a darker skinned woman with running with Joe Biden or wondering why she doesn't wear, I don't know if her hair is like curly because she I know she is mixed race, but I don't know if her hair has a certain different kind of texture, but I was like, why does she always have a silk press? Like, you know, so that's like another barrier, just being our full authentic like selves. Um, that's like a, just a problem that we talk about a lot, colorism and just, you know, different types of like code switching we talk about often things like that um, just within the community and how sometimes lighter skinned black women are looked at much differently and more respectful, more respected than darker skinned black women. And it's like kind of just a race for, or like any way to get to the top of the bottom, if that makes sense. Alicia, something that I appreciate from young people, and you and I are both working on a college campus now, so we interact with young people quite a bit, is that they are able to look at diversity within groups and within communities and to work on that. And yet we also know that as they are navigating professional spaces, often the world doesn't make room for those kinds of differences. And there's an article uh, after this election that says, even when we're suppressed, depressed, or misinformed, we will show up. So when you think about the world after this election and the work that needs to be done beyond this election, how is it that you hope people will show up for Black women and for the kinds of future visions that we want to have? I think that this time around under Barack Obama, I think people of color were just so happy to have the first African-American elected, something that people could only dream of, or some people couldn't even dream that high, that this time, since the black vote brought it through and brought it home for the Biden-Harris ticket, this time the African-American community is gonna be a little bit more demanding and make sure that our community is taken care of and not forgotten. And I think that's very important. And I think that you have a lot of, um, stars that you've seen during this election campaign, right? Everyone who ran for the presidential ticket, the vice presidential potential nominees, the mayors of Atlanta, DC, you know, the Congresswomen. And I just think there's breadth and depth to the African-American history. We know it, right? But they don't know it, right? You went to a historically black college university. My mother went to one. My mother went to the same one that Katherine Johnson went to and people just learned of her story. And that that's how we got to the moon by the work that Katherine Johnson did at NASA. And I think with Kamala being a product of an HBCU, 
that's going to increase the application of the HBCUs and really have people understand there's no stopping. And that's what I like about my, my daughter and her friends. They don't feel they, they, they're going to keep striving no matter what, but they're not going to be quiet about pointing out the hypocrisy, the racism, the colorism. They're going to talk about intersectionality. They're going to have a lot of good stuff to move forward. So Cheryl, we are on the cusp of major change in a lot of ways in this country. And as you reflect back over the course of your life and think about the future for your granddaughter, what's the message that you would share with people? I think while we are in this space where we are excited and jubilant about what has gone on in this country at this moment, I think that we all need to be aware that it's going to take time. All that we've come through didn't happen yesterday and didn't happen in one moment. It's going to take time for some of this change, some of these changes to be made and, and, and to be made, they must be. We should never have to be concerned about having the right to vote in this country. We were born here. This past Veterans Day, I, and I, I reflect on the members of my family who served in the armed forces. And my, my grandmother had three of her sons in World War II. And her baby son was in the Korean conflict. My two brothers served in the armed forces, one of the Air Force and one of the Army. And when I see things and people rah-rah America, it, it just gives me pause. I have to just kind of put my head down because I don't feel that way totally. Yes, it's the greatest country. Don't think I would ever want to live anywhere else. However, I want the country to live up to what it is for me and mine and not just the majority in this country because we are the majority globally, but in this country. Live up to live up to what we have, what we learned as children as we pledged allegiance to this country. Live up to that. One nation under God, indivisible? Not really. Are we living in a democracy? Not really. And I only can pray that with the political leaders who are, are who are in the forefront of this fight and of this land and keeping this democracy as it as it should be. We can only pray that we'll continue to go forth with the proper and good, honest, <laughs> honest leadership that this country needs and must have for us to progress. So Kayla, I have to ask, you'll turn 18 next year. You'll be heading off into these new ventures as your grandmother mentioned. So I have to ask, do you intend to follow in the footsteps of your mother and your grandmother <laughs> of pursuing membership if you are so fortunate? Or do you think that life may take you in different directions? Um, I definitely do. would like to join a sorority. Um, yes, for sure, because I've been surrounded by it my whole life, both of them, my other grandmother as well, a bunch of my aunts, like everyone, even not just AKAs as well. There are uh, family friends who are Deltas, even one of my aunts, actually, my great aunt is a Delta. So just the divine nine in general is just, I think it's a beautiful thing, honestly. And I love seeing people get involved with it and get excited about it. And so, yes, I'm definitely looking forward to that in college. Well, we're excited for you because we know that 
this journey called life for you will present many opportunities. Alicia, I want to end with you because you are in this amazing position of having your mother here to share those stories that too often get overlooked or don't get told. And you see in your daughter the possibilities of what the future looks like. What gives you hope in this moment, Alicia? Wow. I mean, I think that uh, just it's nice to have this three generations in our household to hear where Cable's coming from or where my mom's been and I'm kind of in the middle. I just have hope that anything's possible. I have hope that now people have recognized the importance that we play. We've always played an important role in raising other people's kids all the way throughout, you know, corporate America. And now it's time to put African-American women, not just women, African-American women, because people tend to go to the diversity and just add women. We need to be on corporate boards. We need to be in the C-suite. We need to uh, validate and recognize the power of what Stacey Abrams accomplished. She was cheated out of something that she earned and she turned it around and got voter turnout. It was great for my daughter to see all the different phone banks that I was working on during this campaign. So I have a full-time job. I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm a mother. But this election was just so critical that I had to do voter election protection training and voter election protection. I had to do phone banks. That's how important it is. And it's not gonna stop. I really can't breathe until February. Thanks again to Kayla Spearman and her mom and grandmother, Alicia Spearman and Cheryl Pegues, who have over 94 years of combined membership in Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Thanks also to Lucy Gelman at the Arts Council of Greater New Haven for capturing the celebration audio. We'll have a link to the video and photos at ctpublic.org disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Talarski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.